Hello, my name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about Choi Hawk. Choi Hark? Choi... How do you say Choi Hawk, and I know that because that's what IMDb says. T-S-U-I space H-A-R-K, but it's pronounced Hawk. And uh, I talked to someone who worked with Choi Hawk in Hong Kong, and he said everybody called him Trey Hark. Okay, we're just going to call him Choi Hawk. And we're going to mispronounce a lot of names today. So don't email us. Don't let us know. We are aware of what's happening. Mr. Choi, if you're listening, please feel free <laughs> to write into what's our email. It is importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Right. Mr. Choi, mm-hmm. uh, Mrs. Choi, feel free to <laughs> send a letter. All right. Now, so- Choi Hawk is the Steven Spielberg of Hong Kong. And that's how he is called in every write-up of him. This is your topic that you chose. Why did you choose this? Uh, I love Hong Kong cinema. If I had to pick one um, worldwide, uh, what would you call it? Not movement. Genre, movement. Na- uh, national cinema yeah, movement. Yeah, national cinema movement. It would have to be Hong Kong. Hong Kong has an energy that nowhere else in the world has. I mean, you could say Bollywood has that kind of energy, but Bollywood is very unfocused. But really what we should be talking about is the past tense here, because it's kind of, uh, if you want to be really specific, it was 1985 to 1995 that were the real key years, with maybe a little bit Mm -hmm. on either end of those. And it's over now, in my opinion. Because mainland China came in, and yes. And uh, Choi Hawk's work deals with that a lot. And Choi Hawk, when you get into Hong Hong Kong cinema, he is the first guy that you run into, whether it be Once Upon a Time in China or Peking Opera Blues or even the Van Damme pictures that he made. Like, Choi Hark has an energy that kind of bleeds downward from him. He was a director and also a producer, producing mm-hmm. movies like The Killer, Better Tomorrow, Chinese Ghost Story. Chinese Ghost Story. And it was he, more than anyone else, I think, who really defined the aesthetic of Hong Kong cinema in its golden age. Completely. I would say that a lot of the people that came in his wake or came along with him were kind of imitating his style. And people saw him as kind of a trendsetter. A movie like Once Upon a Time in China kind of revitalized uh, the martial arts genre. Mm -hmm. Whereas Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain, even though it wasn't financially successful at the time, it was the movie that brought sort of sophisticated special effects to Hong Kong. At the same time, though, many people who talk about Hong Kong cinema view Choi Hawk as a bit of a tragic case because when he started out, he was making more uh, provocative political movies. And then he became... Again, the Spielberg of Hong Kong. Yeah, he always categorized himself as an entertainer. So let's give a little bit of background history about Choi Hark. Will, you want to take us off? First of all, his name is Choi Hawk. I'm going to say it wrong every single time we talk about him. Should we? What if we just call him Choi? Choi. Yeah, let's just call him Choi. Good idea. Uh, so, Choi Hawk, what can I tell you? Uh, he was born in Vietnam, uh, spent his teenage years in Hong Kong. Then he went to the United States for a while, where mm-hmm. first he studied cinematography in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. And then he uh, became a documentary filmmaker in New York. Then he came back to Hong Kong and he made a trio of movies that are very well regarded in some circles. But were very financially unsuccessful in Hong Kong. So there was a kind of revisionist martial arts movie, The The Butterfly Murders. Which is fantastic. Like, I would (laughs) highly recommend you check it out. I feel like these films were defined when they were released by HK Video, a um, video label in uh, France Mm -hmm. run by Christopher Gant, the guy who did Brotherhood of the Wolf and Crying Freeman. And um, they called it the Chaos Trilogy. Hmm. So it's the Butterfly Murders, like you mentioned. It's We're Gonna Eat You. Which is his wacky cannibal movie. Which is also a screed against mainland China. Yeah, I mean, I don't... 
I, it's been a while since I've seen this. I couldn't tell you how it's discreet against mainland China, but I know that it's extremely gory. Even, and it's super fun. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of a wacky comedy with intense gore. Mm-hmm. And then the movie that we watched, we watched two movies this week, by the way. Mm-hmm. We watched uh, Peking Opera Blues, his later uh, commercial-friendly Hong Kong blockbuster. But we also watched the third in this chaos trilogy, the incendiary, controversial, dangerous encounter, dash, first kind. Also known as Don't Play With Fire. Now, this is a movie of a guy who feels like this is his last movie. <laughs> like, he's it's a giant fuck you. <laughs> well, most Hong Kong movies of this period, and even now, are not particularly political. Mm-hmm. In 1997... Mainland China was going to take over Hong Kong again, and that would end, I think it was a century of British colonial rule. Mm -hmm. So what's odd is almost no Hong Kong movies actually deal with that incredible fact directly. There are many of them that deal with it in an oblique way. If you watch Chungking Express, uh, Takeshi Kaneshiro is obsessed with pineapple that has particular expiry date. Some people have read that as being like a metaphor for, (laughs) you know, uh, when British colonial rule would end. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think the only... The only Hong Kong movies I can really think of that explicitly mentioned the handover were uh, Gambling Ghost with Sammo Hung, which has some jokes about it. And also at the end of Police Story 3 Super Cop, Jackie Chan is playing a uh, Hong Kong cop and Michelle Yeoh is a mainland cop. A super cop, cop, if you will. (laughs) Yeah, super cop. Michelle Yeoh is the the mainland cop and they're debating which territory should get the villain's money. And Jackie Chan says, give it to Hong Kong in 1997, we'll all be Chinese anyway. And as we would see, Jackie Chan would stick to that line <laughs> yes. throughout his career. Uh, so, again, that's pretty much it. Dangerous Encounter First Kind is an explicitly political film, uh, very in a way that almost no Hong Kong films are. What is this movie about? So this movie is about, and this is an interesting film, is that for a long time it was shown in an edited version. The version that me and Will watched actually had VHS footage edited in, taken from a VHS that Choi... Hawk <laughs> found in his closet and he gave to HK Video, that French distributor, and they edited it in together. It's about three kids that get kind of... They're juvenile delinquents. Mm-hmm, and they kind of get roped into an evil woman who's doing evil things. Mm-hmm. In the unedited version, it's three kids who put bombs in public places and blow them up who get roped in with an e- a more evil woman and they go and do more evil things. It's, uh, you know, the opening scenes... That, first of all, it opens with this evil young woman uh, sticking pins in the heads of mice. And uh, just like any them. Hong Kong film... If there's animals being tortured on screen or hurt and it's cheaper to use real animals, they probably did. And later in the movie, she throws a cat out the window and it falls like 30 stories and lands on a on a fence post or mm-hmm. something. I don't think that was a real cat. Uh, or, if you want to continue believing that. Well, it looked a little bit like a puppet on the close up. Yeah. Did they really? I don't know. I don't cat? know. I think you'd have to have. Either way, choice. either way, it's an incredibly unpleasant scene. And most of the movie is quite unpleasant. The, these young ruffians, they, they figure out how to make a bomb. And so they said, oh, let's go bomb a movie theater. There's no real reason for this. They're no, just, it's just fun. They're just kind of assholes. Mm-hmm. And. Everyone in this movie is just a horrible person. Do you think so? Even the brother of evil woman? I don't know what her name is in the film. Uh, it doesn't matter. Well, <laughs> evil I, woman. Everybody, uh, the movie is in part kind of an angry statement about Hong Kong. So all of these, all of these young people are kind of coming from s- social conditions that led them this way. And even Hong Kong itself is presented as this ugly, parasitic place full of 
teeming horrible buildings and uh everyone's feeding off each other you know what even though the subject matter is very unpleasant i found this movie very fun to watch yeah i mean it's it's certainly entertaining and there's a bit of a I, I admire the audacity of the film, mm-hmm. just the fact that it's so, so ugly and negative and everyone in the movie is so cruel. Eventually, these ruffians get in over their heads because they find a check and they steal the money from the check. From some evil Caucasians. So, some evil Caucasian Vietnam veterans who were involved in a illegal arms deal with some Japanese terrorists. I love how they basically just wear jackets with no shirt the entire time and sunglasses. Oh, and also one of the things that these young ruffians do is they rob Japanese tourists, Mm -hmm. which is Japanese tourists at this time and probably now still are one of the major economic temples in Hong Kong. It's not a subtle message that so Mr. Choi is. It's kind of it's kind of an anti-colonial message. Both the uh, Caucasian Westerners who are exploiting Hong Kong, at the same time, the the young ruffians are assholes too. So yeah, it's just like, kind of it's kind of an apocalyptic movie, nihilistic all around. Yeah, I mean, like you kind of develop some sympathy for the young ruffians, even though they're not good people. Mostly because by the end, what they're going through is so terrible. And they're facing people that are even more terrible than they are. It, it climaxes with this bloody shootout in a cemetery between uh, the, the ruffians and uh, the Caucasians. One of the very last shots is photos from the 1967 Hong Kong riots, which mm. this movie sort of alludes to. Those of you who don't know your history, as I didn't until this morning. In, ni- <laughs> in 1967, there were riots between Hong Kongers who were sympathetic to the communists in mainland and the cultural revolution and those who are sympathetic to the British colonial establishment. And as part of that, many of the rioters would do things like set off bombs in movie theaters and public places. So one of this reason, one of the reasons this film was banned in its original version was because it was a little bit too, it hit too close to home for a country that only 12 or 13 years before had suffered through these terrorist attacks. I mean, it'd be interesting to consider if this had been Choi's only, like, final film, because after this, he kind of switched gears. You could have a great Criterion Eclipse box set of those first three movies in his career, but at, because this movie was such a failure and uh, it was re-edited and it was sort of vilified, anyone could have been forgiven for expecting that he would never make another movie again. Mm-hmm. But then he just spun it around and he made a film called All the Wrong Clues for the Right Solutions, which was a huge hit. And this was made for a company called... Cinema City? Cinema City, mm-hmm. by uh, which was run by Dean Sheck and Carl Maka, which was a flatly commercial organization. Mm-hmm. But when Choi talks about his time at Cinema City, he says that like they would all get together like late at night and they would just talk the movie through trying to get the best film that they could. Like they were passionate about what they were making, which is like the through line of most of Choi Hawk's films. We'll get to some that don't feel that passionate later but a, on. A lot of them have that vigor to it. After All the Wrong Clues, he then made a movie that I love called Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain, which is a wacky phantasmagorical fantasy film full of flying people and swords and shit. Like you mentioned at the beginning, he actually brought in uh, Star Wars effects technicians to work on the film because he wanted something that hadn't really been seen in Hong Kong at that point, which is a more polished special effects look. It had a budget of, I think, 30 million Hong Kong dollars, which was unprecedented at the time. 
And uh, Zoo Warriors from Magic Mountain bombed. Yes. <laughs> pretty uh, badly. Then made a movie that I love called Aces Go Places 3, Our Man from Bond Street. The Aces Go Places series being a kind of comedic James Bond riff. And this one actually had several James Bond actors. It had Harold Oddjob Sakata. Mm-hmm. It had Richard Jaws Keel. Mm-hmm. And it also had Peter Graves, not a James Bond actor, but clearly somebody who needed the money. <laughs> I mean, I'm a little bit more partial to Ringo Lamb's entry, uh, Aces Go Places 4. Oh, have not seen. Which is good. But our man from Bond Street gave him the clout to start his own company, Film Workshop. Mm-hmm. And who are some of the filmmakers and films that came out of Film Workshop? Uh, well, Chin Su Tung, which you mentioned with A Chinese Ghost Story. And John Woo, of course, who did The Killer there. And A Better Tomorrow, which was also a huge hit. And A Better Tomorrow 2, which um, Choi and Woo really knocked heads on that one. So Choi Hawk is hated by many people in the Hong Kong film business uh, for his meddlesome ways. Uh, What happened with John Woo? So as a producer, uh, Choi has been described as a perfectionist. And by perfectionist, they mean... His hands are in every single pie when making a movie, and he really wants to have his say on how stuff happens. So he basically directed Chinese Ghost Story. Supposedly, he basically directed a Chinese Ghost Story. Same thing with a movie called I Love Maria that came out, which was kind of a female take on Robocop. That director, David Chong, has publicly come out and been like, I didn't direct the movie. It was mostly Choi Hart that did. Or then there was a movie called Swordsman, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be the big comeback vehicle for the great King Hu, mm-hmm. one of the most important Chinese directors of all time, but who left the project very early on because he couldn't deal with Choi Hawk. Uh, supposedly, Hawk says that King Hu left because he was sick, that he basically shot only a week. And that film has a weird directorial list because if you find it on the internet, there's like eight directors worked on that mm-hmm. film, including Raymond Chow and Anne Hu and, uh, like we said, Choi Hawk himself. But uh, Choi Hawk and John Woo are not on speaking terms anymore. No, they weren't. And a film that he made in um, the 2000s that Choi Hawk made is actually a kind of F you to John Woo, Time and Tide. (laughs) There's a scene where two characters point guns at each other and they go, oh, I guess we're in a Mexican standoff. And before the guy finishes the sentence, he just blows them away. (laughs) Um, Choi Hawk would go on to make the movie A Better Tomorrow 3, which is a prequel to those series. And that's an example of Hawk being in complete... Uh, phoning it in mode that film is super boring and if you told me that it was directed by hawk i'd be like huh really it almost feels like he's trying to sabotage the series well that's also a movie where Choi hawk stole john woo's idea for a movie and rushed his version into theaters uh john woo wanted to make a vietnam war movie and he did bullet to the head great movie great movie uh, and Choi Hawk basically stole the idea first and rushed it into theaters, so John Woo's movie flopped. I mean, this is a good time to talk about the write-ups that I've seen about Hawk's working method, which are insane. Uh, mostly um, noted in David Bordwell's book, Planet Hong Kong, which they talk about how Hong Kong would have midnight screenings, is that they would premiere a film at midnight and just get the crowds to come in and give their reaction. And then Hawk would then take the film and based on those reactions, would completely re-edit it before (laughs) its countrywide premiere. He would do something that was uh, qualified as lip rape in the uh, David Bordwell book, which is where you make people say stuff because Hong Kong films are not shot in sync sound. Hawk could change the stories of movies completely by redubbing dialogue in the film to reflect what's on his whims he wanted them to say now. (laughs) Now, do you think it's a tragedy that he stopped being a political filmmaker and became a more commercial special effects filmmaker? No. 
I'm a simple man. I like my entertainment. I mean, all his films would deal with kind of political themes, not as directly as something like Don't Play With Fire. But um, sure. So Once Upon a Time in China, for instance, that's where he took the famous story of the Chinese folk hero Wang Feihang, who, uh, for those who don't know Wang Feihang, he was a Chinese herbalist and Kung Fu uh, master who has gone down in history as sort of a nationalist folk hero. And maybe this maybe this is somewhat in relation to the mainland Chinese handover in 1997, but Once Upon a Time in China, the first one is sort of an anti-colonial film where the British colonialists are viewed very suspiciously and the people in in China who go over to America to get a better life, they find out that basically they're over there working the railroads and mm. have a horrible life. And, you know, if you wanted to do that as if you wanted to read it as being like what the Hong Kong filmmakers were going through going to America, you know, the grass isn't always greener on the other side. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing that I've read a lot of reviews about how they're like, oh, they're anti-Caucasian and Choi Harks and these kind of ripping them apart. They don't deserve that. But they did deserve that. Yeah. Didn't and, they? Like, well, and Once Upon a Time in China, too. Yeah, it does some course correcting. It does some course correcting because in that there's uh, a sinister anti-Caucasian religious cult that mm. Wang Fei Hung has to fight. And and those people are like terrorizing the British embassy. And did you go see Once Upon a Time in China when it played at the TIFF Lightbox? I sure did. I saw the double feature of one and two. That's insane. I can't believe they played both of those together. because It was a lot just, to take. Even watching one of Hawk's film is exhausting. And Once Upon a Time of China 1 is like two and a half hours long. <laughs> I got to tell you, I had a good time, though. Oh, they're great movies. Yeah. But like Hawk's like main goal seems to be to entertain his audience at all costs, uh-huh. even if that means that they're going to be like, I guess, asleep or yeah. stumble out of the cinema in a daze. L- let's talk about Peking Opera Blues. What's it about? Uh, Peking Opera Blues is about, I don't even know what time period it takes place in. Uh, no, it takes place around, uh, 1912, just at the fall of the dynastic system. Mm-hmm. And it's about, you summarize it, Will. I can't summarize the plot. <laughs> it's so fucking hard to summarize the plot. Um, it's basically about a bunch of rebel fighters taking on the evil tyrannical dictator. That's pretty yeah. that's simple, right? There are three women in it, mm-hmm. and they get in all sorts of adventures, and it's wildly entertaining. But I would say it may be, if someone said, what is Hong Kong cinema? Give me an example. Distilled. I would give them Peking Opera Blues. Oh, sure, because it has kind of the intense violence, but it also has broad slapstick. It has uh, sentimentality and heartstring tugging moments. In a way that in a way that works, it's like a, it's an effective cocktail. In a way that... Like a Bollywood movie, for instance, might have all those elements, but it'll seem a little more jarring than this one does. And like it's Choi in this movie is so on point with his like action and even his comedy. He shoots comedy sequences, whether it be uh, characters just wanting to grab an object or this amazing scene where seven characters are hiding in one tiny room and trying to keep themselves hidden from one person who doesn't know that they're there yeah. and that and like no one does that kind of stuff better than Choi Inc- Hawk. incredible timing mm-hmm. uh, now Choi Hawk had 15 years of being one of the most commercially successful directors in in Hong Kong the trend-setting director then everything started to go south when the siren song of Hollywood started calling and like John Woo before him he went over and directed a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. I don't understand what the deal with Jean-Claude Van Damme's and Hong Kong directors is. Uh, Choi Hawk, John Woo, Ringo Lam, they all directed multiple films with him. That's right. John Woo learned his lesson the first time, never did another Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Choi Hawk, uh, the most successful director in Hong Kong, did two. 
double team. It's uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman team up to take on Mickey Rourke, who also has lions and a Coliseum lined with mines and knockoff, which does deal with the 1997 handover uh, to China, but in very oblique ways. It's mostly just taking place during that time. In that one, uh, God, uh, we watched the first half of it at one point. I never returned to it because it's it's horrible, but it's no, funny. it's amazing. I watched it last weekend with a bunch of friends and we had a great laugh and actually asked ourselves, why is this movie not more widely liked by people who like that period of action cinema? Now, the plot of it is, is that Jean-Claude Van Damme has to stop bootleggers who have these bootleg blue jeans that have bombs in the ass. Yeah. There's a great... And also Rob Schneider is in it. There's a great article about how knockoff is Troy Hark's commentary on making American pictures in the Hong Kong style and that knockoff itself is a knockoff of what he used to make. Well, you know what? That sounds like a bit of a stretch, except that it actually holds up if you watch the film. Yes. Uh, Sometimes when you see the worst film by a favorite director all the things you like about that director start to seem bad they start to seem like shtick mm-hmm. and knockoff it's like all of Choi hawk's crazy style and his frantic editing and his exaggerated camera angles are just thrown around so arbitrarily it's like he, it's him throwing everything on screen hoping that like why aren't you entertained by this? Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily mesh well with the performance style of Jean-Claude Van Damme or Rob Schneider. No, I disagree. I think they're great in that movie. <laughs> As a couple, they seem to be lovers. And if you watch it through that lens, the film is so much more enjoyable. Now, John Woo, of course, went on for a time to quite a successful career in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, Choi Hawk did not. No, he did. After knockoff, he was like, that's it. I'm done. He went back to Hong Kong making his version of knockoff again with the film Time and Tide. And like, I just watched Time and Tide. Time and Tide is like kind of a cool Gen X action movie where all the action stars are young canto pop stars. Uh, it's it's okay. Troy Hawk, after this kind of like rough period in his career, had a lot of trouble finding his place again. He never quite, well, for the decade after uh, the millennium, It seems like he was, instead of launching trends, it seems like he was chasing trends. Well, I mean, he went and did Legend of Zoo, which was his big CGI blockbuster. It was his remake of the classic Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain, and it's... Incomprehensible. Pretty close to unwatchable. Yeah, like, um, you mentioned that you had a little bit of trouble watching Peking Opera Blues and following the story, and it's mostly because... Hawk, when he goes in and he tells a story, there's almost no exposition in his films. (laughs) Like, it's, you, I'm throwing you in and you follow, or else you're screwed. The problem with Legend of Zoo compared to Zoo Warriors of the Magic Mountain, they're both very hard to follow, and they're both very frantic, and they're both good in small doses. But Legend of Zoo is all CGI that's aged rather badly, (laughs) so it's just kind of numbing. If you show me any five minutes of it, it's fun. Yeah. But for two hours, it's uh, such a headache. And then he did, he did other stuff that, oh, a little movie called Black Mask 2 City of Masks. What led him to make this movie? I'm, I'm really curious. So, uh, Choi Hawk produced the first Black Mask, a Jet Li picture, which was released quite successfully in the United States. That's right. With it's a rap of, soundtrack. It's kind of a superhero type thing where uh, Jet Li is dressed as a guy like Kato, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, Black Mask 2 is, I think, the most inexplicable film in Choi Hawk's <laughs> filmography because it's so tacky and low rent. And it's just it's just such, it stars such a- hilarious garbage. Andy on 
playing uh, the Jet Li role. And it has an incredible cast of American stars that he lured into this. All your favorite actors, John Polito, Tobin Bell, Tracy Lords is in this. Uh, uh, Scott Atkins. Scott Atkins. And, it, and a bunch of uh, WWE wrestlers are in it. The plot is that... <laughs> Black, Black Mask, our hero, has to fight a bunch of wrestlers who have been genetically modified to turn into animal wrestlers. So they kind of morph back and forth between giant animals and wrestlers, and Black Mask has to fight them. Oh, by the way, Tracy Lords in this movie is billed as Tracy Elizabeth Lords. <laughs> Just to add a little touch of the class. I gotta say, Black Mask 2 is a lot of trashy fun. Oh, I love it. I mean, but it is, it's so bad, and it's its early 2000s, so its it has the, this, this sheen that Hong Kong movies had at the time of just this this kind of ugly digital palette and all the special effects have aged really badly and the, the whole genetically modified thing uh is a concern that was very prevalent at the time that that i never hear people talk about anymore it's a funny story of what happened when the film got released in hong kong which is Choi got a group of hong kong superstars i think like andy Lau, jordan chan and they redubbed the entire film in funny voices and also have a narrator commenting on what's going on very um what's up tiger lily mystery science theater uh, which you know that's fun a bit of a come down for the yeah. director of peking opera blues it, I, i'm sure he felt kind of sad about it too like he probably went into that movie with the best of intentions but you know the hong kong film industry uh it, it's pretty much dead now mm. and and the mainland has taken over and so Choi hawk has had a bit of a comeback making kind of mainland super productions yeah uh, the next movie he made after black mask to city of masks was <laughs> seven swords which was a big kind of prestige picture uh lockhart long helped do the action and it's it's painted on a huge canvas i believe that it was not the huge success it was supposed to be no it wasn't but it was a success enough that it like led to a tv series and gave uh Choi the kind of juice that he needed to keep going so then he made a movie in the mainland called uh detective d and the mystery of the phantom flame which was a huge hit mm -hmm. and it i think more than anything else that he's done since uh the turn of the millennium has captured a little bit of that old hong kong crazy feel not as much as you want but enough yeah it seems like he's kind of tampering it down a little bit and it doesn't help that this you know all that cgi yeah it's pretty brutal you and i i think both separately saw his most recent movie the Taking of Tiger Mountain, which is a big historical propaganda blockbuster about the Second World War mm -hmm. based on classic Chinese folktale. But even that one, like all the characters, their designs are so crazy. Yeah. Like, it's not based in any kind of reality. Yeah. Like Tony Lung Cafe plays a um, villain called Hawk. And I think he has like a hawk nose and crazy hair, doesn't he? So it has a bit of the Hong Kong fun in it. But, you know, it has this this mainland china propaganda vibe to it that i can't get all that excited about and in fact like Choi hawk is another one of those directors and i feel like this is going to become a recurring theme whenever we talk about hong kong directors on this podcast but i'm not all that excited about Choi hawk anymore no you don't feel like you can pull it out like journey of the west 2 demon chapter doesn't excite you if he has a movie at the young and dundas cineplex i'll go see it where all the movies are going to play play now because they're mainland chinese blockbusters and i'm sure i will probably be entertained by it somewhat I can't get that excited about these propaganda super productions. I think maybe just like on an ideological level, I find it I find it just a little bit sad that all of these directors who were so idiosyncratic and weird and had so much crazy stuff in the movie and movies in the eighties are now working in this template. But I feel like uh Hawk still kinda has it because even uh taking 
of Tiger Mountain has that scene at the end where um, the climax is kind of, you know, it just kind of happens. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not big. But then it cuts to this wraparound story that's being told where the person hearing the story of the movie that we just saw goes, you know what? I think it, I wish it had happened like this. And then you see the big 90s Troy Hong Kong ending that you would have expected. And it's insane. It's yeah. insane. It's kind of like... Him and Johnny Toe are struggling to find ways to tell the stories they want to tell within this manly, mainland Chinese framework. I mean, I don't get it that excited when there's like at the end of Taking of Tiger Mountain when the ghosts of all the soldiers <laughs> sit at the table and everyone like salutes them. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of corny bullshit. But then I read about like looking up um, Choi Hawk's career. There's a movie that he made called Chasing Monkey that he did just to try out the 3D technology. Uh, before he made his big Jet Li blockbuster, I think it was um, Dragon Inn, Flying Swords of Dragon Inn or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And he did it like under the radar, underground, and he just hasn't released it. Huh. And that's interesting because he can still do those things between the mainland Chinese blockbusters. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a little Choi Hawk movie that's on the horizon that he's going to make just on his own time, maybe with not mainland Chinese money. I'm, I'm not saying that he's got no life left in him. I'm just saying... He- he doesn't really get my heart bracing like he used to. But there's still a huge filmography to discover. And this is like, we talked about this a few episodes ago, that people that listen to this sometimes go, but I'm not going to watch those movies. I would recommend watching Choi Hawk's movies. So if you're giving uh, our, our the folks out there in Radioland a list of some Choi Hawk movies as a starter pack, mm-hmm. what would you say? Give, give them three movies. Uh, Once Upon a Time in China, Peking Opera Blues, and he didn't direct it, but A Chinese Ghost Story. And I would say Twin Dragons with Jackie Chan. <laughs> Can we talk about Twin Dragons? This is the movie where Jackie Chan and Jackie Chan star as brothers mm-hmm. with some really uncanny special effects technology. But was a film that was completely uh, made to help pay for new Directors Guild building. Which I don't think even got built, right? No, it didn't get built. Which is why the film also features like a hundred Hong Kong film directors in cameos. Choi Hawk directed that with another of the leading lights of the Hong Kong new wave, Ringo Lam, and it bears no trace of either of their style. No, it's pretty, it feels more like a Jackie Chan. And I'd also put it kind of near the bottom of the Jackie Chan filmography from that golden age. (laughs) So even though he started that sentence with, I'm going to recommend, you will not recommend that one. No, no, you should see it. It's fun. (laughs) It's twin Jackie Chan and Jackie Chan star. All right. So anything else that you'd recommend? I think I'd reiterate the three that you said. Mm -hmm. Uh, And after you've watched those, watch watch his early trilogy butterfly murders we're gonna eat you dangerous encounter and then watch black mass 2 because it's so good <laughs> you black... will not regret black mass 2 I, if someone says they don't have fun watching black mass 2 you're a lost cause mm-hmm. like i don't know like movies hold nothing for you. also see if you can watch the hong kong version where somebody dubs over john polito <laughs> in cantonese <laughs> <laughs> that's the way that uh, john polito would have wanted it to go down is john polito dead Oh, I don't think so. I think I would have heard about that. <laughs> you think so? Write in and tell us, is John Polito dead? <laughs> so we could do our John Polito episode. Oh, I, I would hate it if he were dead. He's, he seems like a cool guy. Yeah, he seems like he's appearing in Black Mass too. You know, he has kids to feed and stuff like that. Oh, man, I would love to have John Polito or Tracy Elizabeth Lords on the podcast to talk Just to, to talk Black about Mass Black, Black Mass Just a whole Black Mass What was it like to spend the weekend in Hong Kong making this movie? And something else that we didn't point out is that Yuo Ping, the most famous action choreographer from Hong Kong pretty much ever, also did the action in that movie? You can't tell. Was Black Mass 2 supposed to be a huge hit? I feel like it was kind of engineered that way. 
I mean, it looks like sub late period Roger Corman, mm. just garbage. Yeah, but it has a style that Roger Corman stuff doesn't have. Yeah. Like, it feels like Troy Hawk cares. Yes. And that's one of the most, one of the reasons the film is as fun as it is. Sure. I just mean in terms of production value. Oh, yeah. Roger Corman has <laughs> lower levels. Probably big budget for Hong Kong. Hey, is Choi Hawk a feminist filmmaker? Considering that a lot of his films deal with female themes, I would say yes. You know what's interesting about Peking Opera Blues? The gender fluidity in it. Mm-hmm. Which is something that actually appears a lot in uh, Wuxia Pictures, which are the Flying Swordsman films, is that in the Swordsman series, uh, I don't know if this is um, normal for uh, this kind of genre, but that the to become a supreme swordsman, you have to cut your junk off, and which turns you into a woman. and then you Which can turns you into powerful. a eunuch. Yeah doesn't turn you into a woman. Well, she's portrayed by... You don't grow a vagina. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the characters are then played by women. Specifically Bridget Lynn, who is very androgynous. Who made a career in the 90s of playing uh, androgynous, uh, gender-bending types. I mean, is he a feminist filmmaker? You could say that... I just threw that out there to be provocative. (laughs) I know you did. (laughs) This is a question worth throwing at the audience. (laughs) But a lot of his films do feature female leads. Well, A Better Tomorrow 3, interestingly, am am I right? I haven't seen it, but am I right that Anita Mwai is revealed as the one who taught Chow Yun-Fat... To be cool. ...how to wield a gun. Yeah, and wear the trench coat and stuff I mean, that's kind of a twist on John Woo's movies... I mean, they're not anti-feminist, but they just... There <laughs> There's are, no place for women. There are no women in them. It's all about uh, brotherly love yeah. and loyalty. Mm-hmm. And while it's kind of like... It feels like Choi Hawk is going completely against that by putting... Going, oh, this all comes from a woman. Mm-hmm. And this is all the cool stuff you like comes from Anita Mui. So would you uh, call that a, a rebuke to John Woo? I would a, say it's a rebuke. A nephew? Yeah. I feel like it's it's a direct reaction to the other Better Tomorrow. Because Better Tomorrow 1 and 2, the only uh, role that a woman plays is to be Leslie Chung's girlfriend mm. and then have a baby in the second one. Yeah. Like, that's the only thing she has to do. Mm. Um, so what are we watching next week, Will? Uh, we're talking about a young up-and-comer named Orson Welles. Mm-hmm. We are called the Important Cinema Club, so we gotta we gotta check off these Yeah, we just O-tours. got, like, Tarkovsky and stuff like that. Uh, like, I don't know if I want to do Tarkovsky. <laughs> they're going to come up at some point. We'll get a guest for that to uh, do all the heavy lifting. <laughs> so we're going to watch uh, a little movie you might have heard of called Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. We, we have a radical take on it that no one has ever taken before. Overrated. <laughs> uh, don't you hate it when people say that? I hate Citizen it when Kane? people say that. And they're like, oh, it's boring. And I'm like, did you watch the movie? If people call Citizen Kane boring, it's like, I don't want to be the guy who says that... You like, your opinion is wrong well i i i want citizen kane to be a living work of art that people can engage with and have differing takes on but if you say it's boring i don't respect that opinion <laughs> it's just it's just so if if you say that's boring then you're an idiot yeah like and, what do you find entertaining yeah you dark Knight rises yeah the dark Knight rises <laughs> that's actually the best movie ever made uh and we're also going to watch his last movie f for fake mm-hmm. or his last completed film which is often uh qualified as a documentary not really yeah, it's a it's an essay film, mm-hmm. uh, and some point to him as being the person who started the essay film form, which led to such works as Bowling for Columbine. <laughs> Those are the two that you're gonna yeah. the fake direct line to Bowling for Columbine. That's right. So you would say that Michael Moore is this decade's Orson Welles. I mean, in terms of size. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, and I don't. I don't want to. F- be like that <laughs> and please that forgive note, me my name is Justin Leclerc oh wait rate and review us on iTunes rate and review us on iTunes it's not hard 
You yeah. just you can give us a rating, right? Like, I like these guys. We need more reviews than Loose Cannons. <laughs> what? Is there a like, Loose Cannons feud? I'm starting it right now. Do you know that Loose Cannons has has enough reviews now that we it actually shows up the star rating when you click on the podcast? Oh. Important Cinema Club still has the uh, not enough so, ratings to. Okay, where are our fans? Like, get out there! Like, like, is it sad that Loose Cannons has a star rating? But we like, have you even heard that podcast? <laughs> uh, Loose Cannons is great, starring yeah. me and Matthew Cooper. Yeah, not for me. Anyway, your name is uh, Justin the Clue, and I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Loose Cannons forever. <laughs>